As we start, uh, let's pray and ask God that he'll be continuing to use this time profitably to grow us, to glorify him. Would you pray with me? Uh, Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We do thank you that amidst some of the, the, the struggles, the trials, the strife of our, our, our present position, that we do have the ability now to hear from your word as a group of people, even though it's online and in different houses. And we pray that by your spirit, you would be transforming us by your word to be more like Jesus, to give you the glory that you absolutely deserve. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, it would be remiss of me uh, not to acknowledge the, uh, the personal significance and excitement of the last week, uh, last Sunday, the partnership vote that went through, where the selection panel's um, proposed, proposal for me to be installed as the, the, the next senior pastor at WEC. Um, I just want to acknowledge that again and say how humbled and terrified I am, and yet greatly encouragement. Um, are greatly encouraged. The, the level of support and encouragement that both Tiara and I have received over these last little whiles, it's just been... Um, it's just been phenomenal. It's been fantastic. It is a great encouragement. In fact, I want to share one with you. This little gem that appeared on my doorstep not half an hour after the votes were in. Now, I'll, I'll make sure there's a little picture on your screen so you can see it more closely. Um, what does it suggest? Is it reference to me being a smart pastor? Or is it the reference to me being a dinosaur? You see... The begs a question, doesn't it? it? No, 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 nothing. Just knock, door, run. Here it is. A packet of past smart pasta dinosaurs. Well, I'd like to suggest it's because I am a smart pasta, but in fact, it does beg the question, which one is it? It leads us, in fact, I, I bring it because it's a wonderful little lead into today's passage. And I want to start by asking them the question this morning, who actually owns the right to define? Who has the authority to interpret or to impose meaning, to impose intent or purpose? Whether it's a print poem, whether it's a personal speech, whether it's a Facebook statement, whether it's a law code or a creative design of some magnificence, whether it be a piece of art or an invention for common use, even a cryptic little message on your doorstep, who has the right of definition? to impose meaning, intention, or purpose. You see, when I was doing my teaching degree, which I worked out was like nearly 20 years ago, so maybe I am a dinosaur. When I was doing my teaching degree some 20 years ago, it was very popular to suggest a reader response theory to defining meaning. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of that. It's based off the work of a man named Stanley Fish. And it basically, the theory holds that meaning does not reside in the text itself, but in the mind of the reader. And in fact, I still remember my university lecturers drilling into us this idea that a text, any text at that rate, not just written, but a text has as many meanings as it does have readers of that text. And they were championing this idea of the right for definition for the individual. It was a popular theory then. I don't think it's less popular now. In fact, maybe it's even more so. But I want to ask today, is it right? Is it true? Does it work and is it, reasonable, is it a reasonable way to make sense of life with every individual claiming the right to define or determine meaning, intention and purpose for themselves, carte blanche? You see, this is the central issue that we'll pick up on today in today's passage on Luke. This question over the right to define as it relates first to fasting, as it relates to laws like the Sabbath law, as it relates to identity, these are the core questions we're going to uncover. And look, spoiler alert again, 
though the title of the sermon should have given you a, a bit of an indication of this, I alerted you to this fact already. The big idea we'll see in this passage is that when it comes to the right of defining meaning, intention and purpose, Jesus is the one who gets to define because he's the one. Jesus defines. Now let's look how it tumbles out though. Have, um, have your scriptures, have your Bible there with you. Have Luke, 30, uh, Luke 5 rather, verse 33 open up. I will be referring to it often. But the first issue that strikes us right at the beginning of our section, Luke 5.33, as we've heard Caro already just read it out for us, people are grilling Jesus and his disciples about the fact, well, that his disciples don't seem to be fasting. And it's clearly an issue for them because they're comparing this against the disciples of John the Baptist and the disciples of the Pharisees who do fast by comparison. So what's the issue here? This, in this, this, is this tacit critique of Jesus and his disciples justified? Should they be fasting like the rest? That's the question that's being asked, really. Well, we've got to work out who gets to define. Who defines the proper understanding and application of fasting? That's not a bad question to ask. Don't, like, let's not be too hard on the people who are doing this yet. It's not a bad question to ask. But the heart of the question is, who gets to define And look at Jesus' response. In fact, he responds by way of analogy, which in turn actually uncovers the core purpose of fasting and makes it very plain why it would be be inappropriate for his disciples to be fasting. Did you notice this? Have a look with me. Uh, Luke 5.34, Jesus answered, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? It's a funny little question, isn't it? But the the answer to that question is clear, isn't it? That's a nonsensical idea. The arrival of a bridegroom at a wedding, that's a cause of celebration. That's a cause for eating and drinking and jubilation, not for fasting. You see, Jesus, by definition, he has just defined the purpose for fasting by extension. In fact, If you're part of our Bible study groups, you will have looked at this through the week. Some of the Old Testament passages about fasting in your groups, you have seen that fasting is all about mourning. Fasting is all about an expression of dissatisfaction, of dissatisfaction over death, dissatisfaction over sin, dissatisfaction or a yearning for God to put right the things that are so obviously wrong in the world. That's what fasting's about. You see, the problem for the people asking this question of Jesus is that they've misunderstood the man in front of them and therefore they've misunderstood both the time and the context. Now is not the time for fasting because Jesus is the bridegroom. He is the bridegroom prefigured, if you like, by Jeremiah 33, 10 to 11. You have to go back and read that yourself. I'll put it on the screen for you just in case. He is the bridegroom prefigured here, the sign of Yahweh restoring the fortunes of Israel. This is now not the time for mourning or dissatisfaction or fasting. It's a time to celebrate. As a quick aside, did you notice that verse 35 as Jesus continues? There will be a time for fasting in the future when the bridegroom is taken away. There will be a time to fast, Jesus says. Friends, this is where we are right now at a time where the bridegroom, where Jesus is temporarily absent, this is the time to express a level of dissatisfaction, of lament, of an eagerness for Christ to return. And I hope you feel that. Genuinely, I hope you feel that. Not necessarily by a lack of eating, but just generally in the way that you pray, in the way that you rest, even in the way that you enjoy aspects of life, which you ought 
just by definition, that should bring about a level of dissatisfaction as you recognize, even in your enjoyment, that the world is severely broken. That Christ is not yet honored and worshipped as he deserves. In fact, in the eyes of not just thousands, not just millions, but billions of people, Christ is not honored and worshipped as he deserved. As he deserves. Friends, that ought to kindle a real unease in your soul. That ought be a, a time for righteous dissatisfaction and an expression of such. You know, it really does bother me when I hear people in Christian circles talking about fasting for a a personal breakthrough or in some sort of hyper-spiritual language, which really, well, it just boils down to, in essence, it revolves around some sort of tangible, physical, personal gain, fasting for a personal breakthrough, when clearly that is not the biblical notion of fasting. The biblical notion of fasting is an expression of a longing for the king. It's a longing for the bridegroom to return, for his glory to be seen, for his kingdom to be realized fully. Not the realize of a personal fulfillment. But enough of that. A bit of an aside. I'll get worked up if I keep going on there. Instead, see that it is Jesus who defines the time and the context for fasting. And here in Luke, this is not the time. So why do the people miss this? Why do the people who are grilling Jesus this way, why do they miss this? It's because they reserve the right to define fasting for themselves. And they, just, they reserve the right to define Jesus for themselves and they miss the mark badly on both fronts. In fact, Jesus explains their error again by analogy in his parable, which he tells next. It's that little short one, which is actually, it's a bit of an allegory. Really quickly, let me just sort of run you through the verses 36 to 38. I won't read them out. I'll just try to map out what's happening here. See, what they're doing is the people are trying to put the new wine, Jesus, into old wineskins, their preconceived religious definitions. They're trying to sew a new patch, Jesus, onto an old garment. That is the inflexible and man-made Old Testament traditions. And not only does the new patch not match the old, it's tearing the old garment up. The new wine is bursting through the old wine skins because it's the wrong vessel. They've got the wrong definition of Jesus, the wrong way to understand and define him. But rather than appreciate or understand the new wine, the Christ as he comes in fulfillment of the scriptures, to understand the new garment, effectively the new covenant that Christ is ushering in, what's their reaction? Have a look at verse 39. We like the old wine better. Now just think about that for a minute. We like the old wine better. That is a perfectly typical human response. The old is better. I mean, we've got that phrase about the good old days and depending on which generation you come from will will actually shape how you finish that sentence. The good old days. The good old days before radio when people actually stood around the piano and sung. Or the good old days before television where people actually sat around and listened to a program on the radio. Or the good old days before Netflix when people actually watched the same program on television at the same time. Or the good old days before Facebook when people actually talked to each other. You see, depending on which generation you belong to is how you'll define the good old days. We like the old days. We like the comfortable. In fact, everyone knows this. Old t-shirts are the most comfortable because they're the most familiar. They fit our shape already. They're worn in. They no longer restrict our natural movement. 
And I think that's a fabulous illustration for this thing that is in us by nature, this resistance to change, because we like things the way we like things. We like the, way, we like the right to define. And it's no different here, folks. It's no different for the people here that are speaking to Jesus. We'll see in a minute, it's no different for the Pharisees as they speak to Jesus or grill him about the issue of the Sabbath. And it's no different for you and I either. In fact, this is where I think it need, we need to actually take a little bit of stock. Think about this for a minute. When was the last time you changed your thoughts or your convictions on a religious topic? When was the last time you shifted your ideas or your understandings about God? Have you ever done that? Have you ever found yourself adapting to a new idea or a new revelation, a new understanding about who God is, how he works, and more importantly, how that ought to shape or change your lived response? Have you ever done that? Ever come into a fuller, deeper appreciation of God that surprised you? And even more important and more significant a question, what was the basis for that shift in thinking? What was it that prompted that shift or switched on the metaphorical light in order for you to see God differently, more clearly perhaps? You see, this is again at the core of the issue for the people in the, in the passage. The people are unwilling to shift their understanding of God. But I want to say, when it comes to adjusting beliefs about God, there are two potential areas. There are two problems here on opposite sides of the spectrum. On one side, some people change their ideas or their understanding about God more often than they change their underwear. Now, that's not a pleasant thought on either count. These are the people who are blown around and tossed by the waves of of, uh, popular opinion or, or political correctness or some other arbitrary means of an authority and so that their concept of God is always evolving. That's the buzz term. Watch out for it. Always evolving. I mean, I mentioned a few weeks ago the rise uh, in my own personal reading and in my own listening of, of things out in the wild world of this idea of progressive Christianity, which sounds good, doesn't it? I mean, progress is a positive term. Who would dare be against Are you against progress? But my fear is what is often meant by progressive, progressive Christianity is this free flow of ideas about God that seek to mould him in the image of the current political, social and cultural concerns rather than letting God mould their understanding of politics, sociology and culture. It's a classic case of the tail wagging the dog and putting the cart before the horse. And it's led to websites and podcasts and catchphrases like, God is grey. Have you ever heard that before? God is grey. That is, there is no clear or straight line way to answer or understand God. There's no black and white when it comes to God. Because God is grey, everything is up for grabs. Have you heard that before? Do you think that way about God? God is grey? You see, there's a kernel of truth in there, isn't it? That's why I hope you sort of stop and think for a minute there. Is God grey? Is that the way to describe him? There's a kernel of truth in here, but it's far from the full picture. You see, what's true about that is God is infinite. And so it would be folly, it would be blasphemous even, for anyone to suggest that they've built a box big enough to contain God. Or to suggest that they've plumbed the depths or mapped the frontiers of God in such a way that they can know, explain and define his mind perfectly at all times and in all situations, even in advance. That's blasphemous. See, that's the other end of the error continuum. 
But a right acknowledgement of God's otherness, of his transcendence and his infiniteness, that is not to say he is completely unknowable or that he's completely mysterious or that he's completely fluid, malleable and changeable. In fact, this is the real danger of this God is grey type mentality. You see, that the error here is to conflate the infiniteness of God with an uncertainty about God that does not match Scripture. I mean, in real terms, let's be honest, you and I will never know or understand God fully or perfectly as he is in himself. We will never be able to describe or explain him exhaustively. You realise that, don't you? And I want to say that's the nature of the creature-creator divide. That's a right recognition of the reality of, of limitation when the finite tries to explain the infinite. We're always going to fall short of total understanding. In fact, it's exactly why we'll enjoy eternity filling in this picture in God's presence in heaven. Have you thought about this? Do you know how long it takes to understand and plumb the depths of the infiniteness of God? An eternity is the exact right amount of time. The exact right amount of time, precisely eternity, is the amount of time it will take. It's the amount of time that is necessary to grow in a knowledge and a love and an appreciation and a worship-filled expression of the infinite magnificence, magnificence rather, of God. He's just that awesome. In fact, as an aside, it's also why heaven will never get boring, but will always be filled with an expanding joy and delight in the presence of our loving creator God, marveling every moment at the extent of his magnificence, which gets blown away, second by second, moment by moment. But that doesn't mean that we can't know him at all. That doesn't mean there's nothing we can say about him now. His infiniteness does not mean that there is nothing we can say with confidence about God that is mere conjecture or speculation or fluor up for grabs. No, 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 that's bang out of order. And why? Well, Malachi 3.6. For I, Yahweh, do not change. Hebrews 13.8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. God is constant. Do you see that, friends? James says, James 1.17, he does not change like shifting shadows. God is constant. It's a funny way to say it, but there is no potential in God. That sounds negative, it's not at all. What I mean by it is that he already is. God is pure reality. There's nothing in him undeveloped or yet to evolve. He's not progressing in any way, shape or form. He is. He always has been fully realized in and of himself and he always will be fully, fully realized in and of himself. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I mean, we see that actually in Revelation 1.18, used of God generally, and it's on the lips of Jesus personally at the end of Revelation, Revelation 22.13. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Jesus says this because he is God. He is God in the flesh. And as such, Paul reminds the Ephesians, because of this, he fills all things. Ephesians 1.23. God is. Another way of understanding it is you realise there is no mutual dependence going on here in our relationship with God. We're not shaping God. He's not reacting or developing himself or honing his character in reaction in relation to what he sees happening here on earth. No, the risen Jesus is pure reality. He is. 
Even as my understanding and appreciation of him is deepening and widening, the only thing that is progressing and changing here is me, not God. So what can we say about God with certainty and clarity? What can we say about God that is concrete and fine and, and, and definite? Well, actually, the more important question to ask is, what is the foundation of the basis for being able to make such a claim? And I want to say the only appropriate foundation, the only appropriate foundation, it has to be God's own self-revelation contained in the pages of the Bible and it all points to Jesus, period. The right of definition belongs to God. Any claim about God, any call to action or obedience, any suggestion about the purpose or intention of humanity, any notion of how to be in right relationship with God, if it's not grounded in the scriptures that bear witness to Jesus, the word become flesh, John 1.14, the radiance of, the, of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, Hebrews 1.4, then in the words of the modern day popular theologian Snoop Dogg, drop it like it's hot. Friends, if it's not rooted in God's revelation of himself in the, in the words of Scripture that point to Christ, drop it like it's hot. What I mean is the only way that we can be confident about a statement about God is to see it expressed through the reality of Jesus attested by the Scriptures. It means you've got to hold up every and any notion about love, any notion of law and justice, any notion of wrath or judgment, any notion of peace and forgiveness, any notion of human purpose or flourishing. These are not subjects that we collectively decide upon and then project up onto God for validation. No way. These are subjects that can only be understood and applied properly in the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, which can only be recognised fully as revealed in the face of Christ Jesus. If that sounds familiar, it's because it's Paul in, in 2 Corinthians 4.6. Now, I'm laboring this point. I hope you see I'm laboring this point. I'm laboring this point because it gets to the critical error of the Pharisees next. You know, far be it from the Pharisees to be labelling them progressives. They aren't. The Pharisees weren't the religious folk who keep chopping and changing their minds about God with the winds of popular thinking. No way! In fact, they fell off the horse in the precise opposite direction. They were the ones, similar to the people questioning Jesus about fasting, they were the ones who were so dogged and determined to know God that they departed from his ongoing self-revelation and instead tried to contain him in a religious box marked out by their best understanding of the day that, that in a way will effectively muted God from that point on. Now, now hear me right. I think sometimes we give the, the Pharisees a bit of a hard time. That's not bad. But what I mean is the Pharisees weren't uninterested in the Scriptures. You know that, don't you? They weren't uninterested in paying attention to what God had said. They just made the critical error in their context to assume that God had finished speaking, even though the Old Testament Scriptures, carefully and properly understood, would demonstrate that that was not the case. Insert disclaimer here. This is where they are different from us in their context. I'll expand on that in a moment. What I mean is, the whole Old Testament to this point was looking forward to the snake crusher, the figure promised at the fall who would reverse the effects of sin and enmity with God, Genesis 3.15. The Old Testament scriptures were looking forward to someone in the fashion of Moses, a prophet speaking the very words of God from his own mouth, Deuteronomy 18.18. 18. 
The Old Testament scriptures were looking forward to a forever king from the line of David whose kingdom would never end. 2 Samuel 7.13 The Old Testament scriptures were looking forward to a suffering servant. We've just looked at this in Isaiah a few weeks ago. A suffering servant who would atone for the sins of God's people through his death in their place. Isaiah 53.5 The Old Testament scriptures were preempting one like the Son of Man given all authority and glory so that all nations would serve him. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. And none of those things had come to pass before Jesus showed up. You see, the point I'm trying to make here is that the Pharisees had no excuse and no reason to think that God had finished yet. He clearly hadn't. And they had no excuse for not recognizing him when he appeared. They should have been listening. Now, back to my little aside, this is what I say when we differ contextually with them. We're not in the same space with them because Christ has come. He has come and fulfilled everything that God has promised. You know, we don't listen now by looking for new prophets with new and different revelations about God. No, no, we listen to God by paying attention to what has been said and what has been fulfilled by Christ in the New Testament, including how his promised return shapes our future. Jesus is God's full stop. Massive importance there. But back to the Pharisees. Like I said, they're the opposite ends of the error spectrum. They're the ones who are so dogged and determined and so stuck in the mud that they've missed God in the flesh. It's, a, it's amazing. Let's look at the example of their, how their religiosity has become a straitjacket for them understanding God. Look at with me, um, chapter 6, verse 1. What we've got going on here. Jesus and his disciples, they're walking through grain fields. One Sabbath day, the disciples are picking you know, heads of grain, rubbing in their hands and eating the kernels. And what do the Pharisees say? Chapter 6, verse 2, look at it with me. Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Now, clearly, the Pharisees believe that Jesus and his disciples are breaking God's law here. Specifically, it seems that they're pointing to the fourth commandment given to Moses in the, you know, the Ten Commandments that refers to the Sabbath day and about keeping it holy. Now, let's be clear, the Pharisees haven't made this law up. They're just seeking to enforce it. But to do that, they need to understand what the law means. So how do they understand it? What exactly is the nature of the charge they are making against Jesus and his disciples here? You see, the fourth commandment says nothing about it being unlawful to eat on the Sabbath day. So that can't be the issue. Rather, the Sabbath day law is about resting from work. It's about carving out a day that is distinct from the working week, both as a concession to human weakness for rest and as a reminder that we have not yet entered that permanent state of genuine rest in God's presence that was forfeited at the fall. You see, the Sabbath day is kind of like a fast at one level. It's a necessary rest and an expression of a dissatisfaction that we're not in the rest that we were made for. But you see, the Pharisees, well, they've taken it upon themselves to define the actions of Jesus and his disciples in a different way. And though no more energy was expended between their act of rubbing some grains in their hands and the act of the Pharisee raising his spoon to his gob to feed himself at Sabbath lunch, they've determined that this act by Jesus and his mates were work. That's work. They've defined this act to be an unlawful industry in breach of God's law, so much so that it defiles God's holy day. But who gets to define? Who gets to define the law again? Who gets the right to determine, explain, or hold people to account for God's law? Isn't this God's law? 
Isn't this bound by God's intentions and purposes? And who is it again that the Pharisees are presuming to lecture? (laughs) I mean, even before he identifies and reveals himself as the Lord of the Sabbath, as the one who has the right to define the intention of his own law, do you see how Jesus responds here? He points them back to an occasion with King David in 1 Samuel 21, when David was given the consecrated bread by the priest Ahimelech, bread that was only supposed to be eaten by the priests. And Jesus' point in doing this is not so much to suggest that David was right to eat this bread. I don't think it's the situational ethics that Jesus is promoting here, but rather he seeks to point out the inconsistency of the Pharisees. You see, King David was placed on a very high moral pedestal by the Pharisees. They're not going to say anything nasty about God's chosen king. They're not about to hear a bad word said about him either. Even when it was clear that he's in violation of the Levitical law. You look up Leviticus, I think it's 25. I didn't write down the reference. Yet here they were at the same time attempting to charge God's own son with law-breaking, even though it was so clearly not a violation. Do you see the hypocrisy here, friends? Isn't it just dripping with irony? I mean, I love, a, I love irony, but this is sickening. The supposed teachers of God's law lecturing God, the author of those laws, on his understanding and his application. It's pure madness. And yet their hypocrisy doesn't stop there. Flash forward to another Sabbath day, chapter 6, verse 6. He, Jesus, entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath day. Now, do you hear that? Once again, blinded by their own preference for their religious traditions, which is rooted in their own definition, the teachers of the law here have already decided that for Jesus to heal this man on the Sabbath day, that'd be a work violation. Despite the fact that the priests work on the Sabbath day, Despite the fact that it seems or it appears that they're working pretty hard this Sabbath day, working to find evidence to accuse him. And yet look at how Jesus again calls out the hypocrisy and their stubbornness, their refusal to hear reason from the one they claim to honour and revere. Having the man with the shriveled hand stand in front of everyone, Jesus asks a very simple question again, which reveals the heart of the Sabbath law as he, as author, intended. Chapter 6, verse 9, Jesus asked the Pharisees, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save or to destroy life? Again, the answer is easy, but the silence is deafening, folks. There's crickets. (laughs) They say nothing. Chapter 6, verse 10, Jesus looked around at them all and then said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so and his hand was completely restored. And the Pharisees' response, verse 11, they were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. Again, don't miss the irony here, folks. The same Pharisees and supposed teachers of God's law who refused to answer Jesus' question about good or evil on the Sabbath now answer that question with their actions as they, on the Sabbath, plot to kill the Son of God, the Lord of the Sabbath. It's diabolical. 
Now, friends, what are we to do with this here? How are we to understand and respond to this passage like this in our day and age? And I want you to see, we're just coming back to the same thing again. It all comes down with who's got the right to define, who gets it. When it comes down to matters of God or religious observant, who gets the right to define acceptable practice, God's intention, ultimate purpose, your actions? Is it you? Is it the Pope? (laughs) Or is it the pastor of the church or the leadership team of the denomination you belong to? Is it popular opinion? No, it's Jesus. As the author and the creator, as God over all, his definition is all that matters. And he's not left us guessing, friends, about his intentions. 2 Timothy 3, 15 and 16. Everything you need to know about God to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, it's here. It's here in the self-revelation of God, the scriptures he breathed out. As by his spirit, he got, as he, by his spirit, he guided the pens of men who wrote, who were the eyewitnesses, 2 Peter 1.21. So if you're here and you're someone, or if you're watching and you're someone who chops and changes your understanding or your beliefs about God for any other reason or on any other basis than God's full and final revelation of himself in Christ and in the scriptures that bear witness to him, then knock it off. You're out of line. Friends, you need to repent. You need to come back to God's definition. You need to read and understand and apply the Bible to your life and sit under it, not over it. Conversely, if you're watching here today and you've never changed your understanding of God, if you look at your life and you cannot discern any change in your understanding of growing in your knowledge and love and service of God from childhood, or from the lessons you were taught by well-meaning Christians in your Sunday school, or by people who base those lessons on anything other than the Word of God, if your religious ideas or your understandings of God are based on a prophetess or a priest or another text or or a personal interpretation, and if you've never weighed your adult beliefs and your adult understanding about God against His own Word, knock it off. You're out of line. Friends, you need to repent. You need to open God's word and be willing to change any and all of your thoughts about God in alignment, in alignment with his definition. It's not based on what you've always thought because you've always thought it. And if you're tuning in here today, I don't want to miss you. If you're here and you're listening and you're not yet a Christian or if you're someone who's trying to work this out afresh or maybe rework this out for the first time in a long time, I'm so glad you've tuned in. It's wonderful to have you. But the question I want to ask you then is who actually has the right of definition over your life, over your purpose, over your identity? That's a hot topic in this day and age, isn't it? Who gets the right to define who I am? Is it you? Or is it the God of creation? Is it the author of everything and anything that ever, that ever was, will, uh, sorry, that ever is, was, or will be? You see, friends, my university lecturer, there was something right about what they said. There may be many interpretations of a text. There may be many ways to describe an identity. There may be many, many ways to express purpose or understand a cryptic, uh, cryptic message on the doorpost. But there's only one truth. There's only one meaning and it belongs to the author 
and that's Jesus. He defines because he's the one. Friends, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would, by any and every means necessary, humble us to realize that we are not our own, that we do not have the right of self-determination or self-definition in any way, shape or form, but rather that you as creator, as author, it's only your decision, it's only your intention, it's only your uh, purpose that we should be interested in. And so, Father, we pray that you would humble us and make us aware that we might honour Jesus as he deserves, as God of all. We pray in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen.